Upsla Podcast Episode 2, Martin Odersky on Scala. Welcome to the Upsla Podcast. The Upsla Podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Upsla Conference, which takes place in October 2007 in Montreal, Canada. The Upsla Podcast is co-produced with Software Engineering Radio and Dim Sum Thinking. I am Markus Völter, your host for this episode. In this episode, we talk to Martin Odersky and his Scala language. Scala is a language that fuses object-oriented and functional programming paradigms and runs on top of the JVM. A more extensive version of this interview is available on Software Engineering Radio at se-radio.net. Okay, Martin, welcome to uh, the podcast here. Um, before we discuss Scala in detail, why don't you ex explain a little bit about your personal background? Okay, so I have uh, grown up in Munich in Germany. I uh, then uh, did my PhD in the group of Niklas Wirt at ETH Zurich, uh, working on structured programming and modular 2 and languages like that. Uh, then I've been uh, living in a lot of countries, starting uh, with uh, the US, where I worked for uh, IBM research at uh, Yorkton Heights. Uh, at Yale University, then I also worked in Karlsruhe in Germany and in Australia, and since 1999 I'm here in, at EPFL in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland. So from my research interests I've sort of shifted from classical structured programming to uh, functional programming, I've been working a lot of on, on that, and uh, the last 12 years or so my main occupation has been to transplant functional programming ideas back into mainstream languages. Which is, of course, also one of the main uh, ideas in Scala. So why don't you give us a two-minute overview over the Scala language to, to give us a, a flavor of what we're going to talk about? Okay, so uh, Scala is a language which fuses uh, functional and object-oriented programming I think it, it's, a, it's a more tight fusion than any, what, what's achieved by any other language today. And uh, it also tries to do that mm -hmm. while staying completely interoperable with Java. Uh, for me, the end result is that it feels, programming in Scala feels more lightweight and nimble than uh, programming in Java. It's more really like programming in a scripting language like uh, Ruby or Python, say. But at the same time, uh, Scala is, uh, has a static type system. Uh, so uh, it's more uh, you. Uh, it has a type system that checks more properties for you than the scripting languages. Um, nevertheless, even though uh, Scala has static types, uh, most of these types mm -hmm. you don't need to write because they are inferred to you. Uh, so the net effect is that programming in uh, Scala achieves a, a reduction in lines of code of let's say between two and three compared to when you program in Java. So in the end, you program faster, and I hope also more reliable. So since I suspect that most of our listeners will be, well, OO folks, um, why don't you introduce a little bit the core concepts of functional programming? What is it that you integrated into the OO mainstream? Okay, so, so when people talk about functional programming, uh, I think there are two different ways to talk about it. One of it is uh, 
negative and restrictive and the other is rather positive and inclusive. <laughs> so the negative and restrictive way is to say you shouldn't use assignments. Assignments are bad. Uh, you want to program without any assignments, without any variables that change state during the execution of the program. Having such variables is called imperative programming and functional programming, people say, sort of the absence of imperative programming. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I think this is fine as a goal that you say you want to minimize state because a lot of state is often state is used is overused because every time you use state you might get some hidden dependencies between components so it has to be used with care mm -hmm. but uh, it's not it's not really what we want to do so the positive thing which we subscribe to is to say well functional programming is fun is programming the, that puts an emphasis on functions. So functions or methods uh, are treated as first-class values. You can pass them around as parameters. You can put them into variables. Uh, you can have them as fields and uh, and and things like that. So they're first-class objects um, mm -hmm. that you can use. And um, with that, actually, you get a lot of power. Um, in particular, if you combine it with some of the other syntactic conveniences of functional programming. So. One of the ideas is that you should be able to nest functions inside each other. Mm -hmm. Another idea is that, that you should be able to define functions by pattern matching. So that means you can you can match on uh, values that you uh, that, that that are parameters of functions. And this matching is uh, at first glance it looks a bit like a switch in Java, mm -hmm. but it's really much more powerful because you can have not just numbers in each case, but you can have arbitrary complex expressions that contain constructors and variables. And if a pattern matches, then actually you, it, as a side effect, it also gives you names for access paths in these objects. You read, one really has to try it out to appreciate it. Uh, but in some, it gives you a very, very powerful way to uh, access complicated data structures. So we've already started uh, discussing some of the features of Scala. The first one we talked about was case classes and pattern matching. So um, let's let's look at, at some of at some at some other features in, in Scala. So another feature that's interesting is multiple multiple inheritance, compound types, traits, mixins. When I looked at it, it, it looked like kind of a redoing Java's interfaces and and inheritance mechanism to be a bit more powerful, although it's for me a little bit hard to see where this additional power comes from. So why don't you elaborate a little bit how these things uh, relate and how they work? Okay, so instead of classes and interfaces as uh, for Java, Scala has uh, classes and traits. And mm -hmm. a trait is sort of a very much enriched interface. So an interface only gives you the signatures of some abstract methods. That's all it can do. Mm -hmm. A trait can also give you some implementations of the methods, or all, all the methods might be implemented, but typically only some of them are. And it even can give you states, uh, states so some fields that go with the trait. Mm -hmm. So a trait is sort of an um, implementation module, and you then can mix these traits together using mix-in composition. Uh, mix-in composition is essentially um, a uh, disciplined way of doing multiple inheritance without uh, some of the problems you get with respect to name collisions and uh, diamond inheritance and things like that. So um, you already said in the introduction that a functional language is characterized by the fact that functions are first-class values. So one thing that comes to mind immediately if you talk about these things is closures. Right, yeah. So, so a closure is essentially a function value, which uh, in a sense captures the, 
definitions of all the variables around the function value when it was first created. That's why it's called a closure. But yep. in, for all intents and purposes, you can, you can use closures as an alias for function values, really. So when we say functions are first class values, what does it mean? Well, for one, it means that, well, if you have, let's say, a number, that's a value. And uh, one of the things you can do with a number is you can just write it down. You can write 42, and that's mm. the number 42. You don't need to actually do uh, a definition to say uh, int uh, my number, and then you define it to be the number 42. You can use it directly. That means mm -hmm. you have a literal. Form. Literal, yeah. So for functions also, because they're first class values, you have literals. And that's what's usually called a closure syntax. Mm -hmm. So that means uh, this is closure. It, uh, you designate some of the, uh, you designate the parameters of the function, then comes an arrow, and then comes the, an expression or a block which computes the result of the function. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just a natural uh, consequence of the fact that functions are first class. So it means you also want to have literals. Mm -hmm. One of the advantages of having that is that it gives you a very convenient way to introduce new control structures, so mm -hmm. to abstract over control. So uh, one of the examples where this comes up is, let's say, uh, you often uh, deal with files, and uh, of course we all know that we have to close files when we're done with them, yeah. but we also know that that's something that's very easily forgotten. Yeah. So uh, uh, one way to do it is to be really very, very careful and read your program and check that every open is matched by a close that's always reachable, that's not bypassed by an exception and so on. Yeah, that gives you these ugly try finally things in Java. Right. So what closures could give you there is that you could, uh, or somebody could, uh, define in a library once and for all a thing with file do, and that takes a file or a name of a file, it opens mm. the file, if the open is successful, it will then execute a block of statements or an expression that returns a result. And then it will actually wrap this thing into the try finally. Mm -hmm. So the net effect for the client is that you only have the, this, uh, this operation with file do, which is sometimes called using right, in yeah, some languages, yeah, yeah. for instance, and, uh, and be done with it. So the nice thing is that uh, this thing is then, once you have closures, you can do it in a library. You don't need a special language form mm -hmm. for that. And, and there are many other control abstractions that uh, that closures could give and you. Use it all the time in our compilers and, and libraries. Um, if you have closures, then you automatically have anonymous functions because closures, yeah, well, basically are anonymous functions, function literals. So um, you can then, of course, also define function types and function pointers, I guess. So you can uh, have maybe probably other functions that take functions as arguments because you can write function signatures. Yeah, that's that's all really part of the idea that uh, functions are first-class yeah. values. So uh, you can parameterize them if a value has a type. So you need values which are function types. Uh, on the other hand, I've said Scala is a pure object-oriented language. Every object, every value is an object. So it also means that every function is an object. So that mm -hmm. means that the function type has to be the type of an object. That means it has to be a class mm -hmm. or yep. a trait. As it, as it turns out, it is a parameterized trait. So if you have a function from, let's say, into string, then this is treated as the trait uh, function one. So it means a function with a single yeah. argument, with, which takes two parameters. The first is int, that's the argument type, and the second is string, that's the result mm -hmm. type. Next topic would be comprehension, sequence comprehensions. Um, when I looked at it, it some of the examples seemed rather trivial because it looked like a for loop, and some of the examples I didn't get. Um, so maybe you can explain a little bit what, what, comprehension, what comprehensions are. 
Uh, comprehension is uh, again something which can be very very general so it can be as simple as a for loop or it can be way more general uh, a comprehension you could say is uh, a um, java extended for loop uh, uh, which can also return a result so a java extended for loop you step through an iterator the successive values of yep. an iterator and uh, each time you get a new value you you uh, perform a sequence of statements with this value uh, the next step is, well, let's assume you can do that, but each time you go through the loop, you not just do a side effect, but you also produce some item of the result. Mm. And your result would then be a sequence of, of just the values that are produced mm -hmm. by this. So that's the first, first step. Uh, then you could go on and say, well, actually, maybe I don't want to traverse only a single iterator. Maybe I want to combine traversals of several mm -hmm. iterators or sequences. And finally, I also might, might want to, uh, to filter things and, uh, and, um, uh, only, only consider certain values. So if you take all this together, then you get a, have a very fairly rich algebra in which you can express uh, a lot of amazing things. So the simplest one is the usual for loops we talked about. You can also do a lot of uh, combinatorial search programming, so of the kind that you typically find in Prolog. You can also do a lot of uh, database access programming. So these four uh, comprehensions, they essentially look like an SQL query. And actually, some of the additional libraries in, uh, that exist for Scala let you express SQL queries as these four comprehensions. So there's something very similar which has been done recently for C Sharp 3.0 with Link. That's essentially, mm -hmm. It's essentially the same thing, you might say, only that the four comprehensions in Scala, they can be used also for uh, more um, for, for for different things for for more for 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 they they are a little bit more general so you can use them for other things uh, um, besides database access. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, let's go back to some of the more object-oriented uh, type system features. So you have generics, right? Right. So how they are different from Java? Well, on a basis, they're very similar. So. Um, well, I co-designed the Java generic system, so right. this is not a yeah. big surprise that they're very similar. Yeah. Um, so, um, the uh, the on the surface, the biggest difference is that generics in Scala are written with brackets uh, instead of angle brackets, <laughs> but yeah. otherwise they really behave fairly similar. So, so uh, type uh, parameters can have bounds. Uh, and uh, the bounds, uh, the type parameter can appear itself in the bound. So you speak of f-bounded polymorphism. So in that sense, it's exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, there's one difference uh, which is, um, uh, with respect to variances. So after we were finished with the GJ design, the Java folks added wildcards to the Java language. And that's where the Scala design is actually different. So the question is, what do you do if you want to express that uh, when, when you want to ge combine generics with subtyping? So for mm -hmm. instance, um, let's say you have a list of uh, numbers. and. Uh, uh, then you have a list of uh, integers, and the question is, how does a list of integers relate to a list of numbers? Right, because the the, the, the arguments are subtypes of each other. Exactly, because integers are subtype of number. You would yeah. expect a list of integers to be a subtype of a list of numbers, mm, which it isn't in Java. 
which it isn't in Java directly, but in Java you can write something which is called a list of question mark extends number, yeah. which means a list of some unknown subtype of numbers. So that's called yeah. a wildcard. So what you can you, what you can do in Scala instead is that you can annotate the list to say, well, actually I want lists to be covariant. A list of integers should be a, a subtype of list of numbers. So uh, then we talk about declaration side variants. So it, it, that means you declare your variants, the, the, the one you want to have whereas uh, Java has use side variants. That means you use some some trick to ensure variance every time you use a type expression like list of question mark extends number. So that's the main difference. Um, and you can also argue endlessly which one is better. But uh, the fact <laughs> is there, there is a difference. Okay. Another thing that I found very, very nice when I was um, playing around with Scala is type inference, especially if you combine it with uh, generics. I mean, in Java, you really have to type quite a lot of crap, basically, to declare the, 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 the type parameters, basically, on the, in the type declaration and in the object construction in the new statement. Yeah. So that's one place where type inference actually really shines. Indeed, yeah. So I think for type inference, uh, there are various degrees in which you can do it. Uh, uh, on the other hand, sometimes you say, well, actually, I want my types because they're good documentation value, yeah. uh, sort of check documentation that's checked for yeah. consistency with the program. Yeah. So I, I think the game of type inference is to avoid uh, annoying type annotations that most people find annoying and yeah. at the same time keep useful type annotations, type informations. Right. And uh, so that's what sort of what we have tried to do with, with Scala. It's a big engineering effort. It's not easy to come up with a good type inference that has these properties. Mm -hmm. There is more implicit stuff in Scala that uh, I think you should you should talk about a little bit. Some of that uh, is like, for example, coercions from from functions to methods, or from methods to functions, because what you talked about before applies to functions, and right. methods are not functions. Yeah, that's sort of another one of these uh, mechanisms that underlies it. So when I said Scala is a functional language, so every function is a value mm -hmm. and uh, it's also an object oriented language in the sense that every value is an object it means that every function is an object right, right? and indeed it is an object which has an apply method so essentially mm -hmm. a function is an object which gets uh, which uh, when i apply uh, this object so i use it in front of uh, parents and some arguments and this really means that I, I i invoke the apply method of this object Right. But then you have a problem and to say, well, yes, yeah, but then the apply method, that's a method, so that's a function, and the function is an object itself, and then it never ends. So you get, mm -hmm. you build up an infinite <laughs> stack of apply methods. So what, uh, that's of course not what happens. So what happens is that we say a method gets converted into a function value automatically whenever the program requires a function, be it mm -hmm. that it gets passed to some uh, argument that has, is of a function type, or uh, assigned into a variable that is a function type and things like that. So that's the implicit conversion that we say we take a method and we convert it into this object with an apply uh, method uh, on demand in a sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. And of course, you can also have coercions between uh, uh, like int and float. Oh, right. So that, that, that's stuff. another way. Yeah, right. So that's yeah. another thing yeah. where a lot of the... Uh, Primitive conversions in Java, they're subsumed under this idea of having yeah. implicit conversions, which are also user-definable. So you can actually yeah. also define new ones for, for your programs. And uh, we use that a lot to uh, do something which I like to call pimp my library, that uh, we, we deal with um, 
uh, well, because uh, a Scala program is embedded into a Java environment, we use a lot of the Java types like mm-hmm. uh, like strings and uh, well primitive numbers and box numbers and strings yep. and arrays and whatever. And uh, the problem is that a lot of the Java class definitions and interfaces, uh, we really would like to have richer ones, to have more functionality in them. Uh, in part, this is just because uh, the the Scala culture is more that way. In part, uh, it's because you couldn't have done it in Java because uh, Java doesn't have higher order functions, so you can't have any any methods of that kind. So uh, I, I give you an example. Let's say the class string. Uh, so strings can be considered to be sequences of characters, mm-hmm. and there is a class sequence in Scala which. Um, Treats general sequences and has a lot of uh, interesting and useful functions. For instance, there's a function for each, which applies a certain block of code yeah. to each element, or a function map, which maps the sequence to some other sequence, and all these functions here. So you'd be able, you, you'd like to be able to add this to the string class as well, but of course you can't because string is defined by a Java library and it's a final class, so you can't you can't fiddle with it. So what we do instead is we have a class which is called rich string, which has all this behavior. So it inherits from sequence, it adds all these methods, and uh, then there is an automatic conversion from any string to a rich string value, which gets applied whenever you declare something to be of type rich string, or more commonly when you actually call one of these methods. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's really like a bit like the extension me- methods of, uh, let's say, C Sharp or Visual Basic. But it's mm-hmm. al- also more powerful because with this device, we can actually make string into a subclass of sequence, whereas with extension methods, you only can add methods. Yeah. You can't let something which exists implement any new interfaces. Right, yeah. Okay, um, the, the last of the features I think we want to talk about before we talk about a little bit more about where Scala is used and stuff is concurrency. Um, I think you've done more than just inheriting Java's threads and synchronized keyword, I guess. Uh, right. So, in fact, we don't inherit the synchronized keyword, but we can ah, remodel okay. it. We can model it with a uh, with a uh, with a with a one of these uh, control abstractions because you can mm-hmm. write, for instance, you can write synchronized, and then in braces a block. And, yeah. Well, uh, the right. block is it becomes just uh, just a, a a closure that you pass to the synchronized. Yeah. Um, yeah so so. Uh, as a first approximation, we can use all Java threads, but as a, uh, we actually have built on that uh, several libraries, and we have sort of converged on one, which is called event-based actors, which is used a lot uh, in, in existing Scala implementations. Uh, um, so that's actually a very good example how the power of combining functional object-oriented programming bears fruition in something completely different. So uh, what the... The, these actors, uh, they are, as a first approximation, they're threads and they interact with message passing. So you can send a message to an actor and you can receive a message. But the receive actually is then a thing that uses pattern matching. So it, mm-hmm. so it says, well, essentially when you send a message to an actor, the message gets queued in a mailbox of the actor. Yep. And then you can have a receive which says at this moment in, in my execution, I'm interested in messages of this kind or that kind. And it will pick the first message queued in the mailbox that matches any of the patterns in the receive and can mm-hmm. continue from that. 
So this was done, uh, it's not new to Scala, this is the model that's used in the airline programming language, mm -hmm. which is used with uh, quite a lot of success in telecoms and other, uh, other applications that require massive concurrency. Uh, so in Scala we could do it precisely because, because we can subclass functions. So these receive blocks, essentially pattern matching blocks, they're treated as something we call a partial function. So that's a function where you can actually find out whether it's defined. And you need to be able to find out whether this block is defined to do the, the process scheduling. For, for that reason, we were actually able to do the whole actor stack uh, it's purely in a, in a library, so there is no special language support whatsoever for it. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the general way of uh, abstracting over partial functions was good enough, we could use it that way. And um, what we did then was to say, well, one of the problems with this with a thread-based approach is that it's not very scalable. So once you go past 5,000 threads or so, your application will become yeah. seriously slower, even crash. Yep. And uh, what we did there is that we actually used the closure idea to say that there, there is a version of, these, uh, of this receive which actually detaches not with the whole thread, so it doesn't block a thread, but it, but it detaches with the closure. And that means that you only have to store a closure rather than a thread. So yeah. it, what it means is that in, in the end, you have the same efficiency and scalability as event-based programming, but you don't have the inversion of control. Uh, a lot of people don't like the inversion right. of control because it yeah. makes your program harder to read. Yeah. So you can still have the, the usual control flow, but get the efficiency of event-based programming. Mm -hmm. Nice. So let's look about uh, look at some of the more well worldly features of languages today. What about IDE support? I guess you have an Eclipse plugin as everybody else. We have an ex Eclipse plugin. That's right. Okay, and, good. Uh, <laughs> We are uh, currently readying the second version of that, which should be, uh, which does some interesting stuff on highly incremental computation. So we hope it will be very, very responsive. Um, the um, there's also a, an IntelliJ plugin uh, which has mm -hmm. been developed by people at uh, JetBrains, the company that mm -hmm. does IntelliJ. And there is a number of um, plugins or modes for for basically all the edit editors out there. Mm -hmm. So we hope that there will be further plugins in the future, but that's all there is right now. Okay, then I want to thank you very much for being on the show. And, um, well, uh, I wish you all the success you might want to have for, for your Scala language. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Upsla podcast. If you want to know more about the Upsla conference or if you want to get additional Upsla podcast episodes, visit the conference website at upsla.org. This episode, as well as all the other episodes of the Upsla podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East. <laughs>